0: Hello and welcome to the A's Plus Podcast. I'm John Shea, National Baseball Writer of the San Francisco Chronicle, and our guest is Steve Vucinich, A's Clubhouse Manager and A's Historian, really, who shares some wonderful stories and his thoughts on his 54 years on the job and his upcoming retirement. What a pleasure to be hanging out with Steve Vucinich, the awesome longtime clubhouse manager of the A's, who has said this will be his final year, sadly, for us, but wonderful for you, Steve. I mean, 1968, Charlie Finley, uh, all new to the Bay Area, a 15-year-old kid, you know, running around in the clubhouse as a bat boy and doing all the duties that you did, and to moving up the ladder and running the clubhouse the past several decades. Well, first of all, congratulations on the upcoming retirement, and thanks for hanging out.
1: John, it's always a pleasure to do these podcasts with you, Susan, or anybody. I I enjoy reminiscing.
0: Well, uh, much appreciated. Now, this is your 54th season, and when the team went back to Philadelphia, the Historical Society noted that uh, you actually... Will be surpassing Connie Mack as uh, maybe the longest ten-year employee in A's history, which is pretty amazing. But um, uh, you know, he he played for 11 seasons, but never for the A's. Uh, shoot, he played in the 1800s, so it's kind of safe to say that uh, uh, it's a it's an incredible feat in, in on on any front, but. Um, well, what was it like uh, working in the clubhouse with Connie Mack? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that was before <laughs> your time. But uh, Well, maybe you could tell me the secret to longevity, uh, durability, because you have to be a people person, man. I mean, you have to get along with people. You make people comfortable. That's for starters, I imagine, right?
1: Absolutely. You have to be able to um, know when to be quiet, know when to speak, um, as a 15 year old kid working in a clubhouse, you just kind of sat back and listened to people. You didn't talk to them unless you didn't talk to anybody unless they talked to you first. Um, and like I said, adapt uh, to the changes. I, I was growing up at the time, kind of uh, starry eyed with these professional athletes uh, about how they went about their business, how they conducted themselves, either with the media or just their teammates or uh, coaching staff. So, um, it was an eye-opening experience, a wonderful experience, um, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, now the position I've risen to, there's only 30 of those jobs in the U.S. Yeah. And I can say U.S. because Blue Jays don't look like they're going to Toronto. No, But uh, um, it's uh, it's been a fun time. Uh, I've cherished every moment of the friendships I've made across the U.S. Seeing guys come out and call and talk to me while we are in Boston, ex-Red Sox guys, that I'd heard about. My upcoming retirement uh, shows you the value of, of friendships. And, you know, I, I lasted because I cared hmm. and I obviously did the job right. So, you know, I use the line that I know where the bodies are buried, but we know that's not true. <laughs> well,
0: when the book comes out, we'll know it's true. No, um, uh, I imagine there's no book. Well, hey, Mike Murphy of the Giants wrote a book with, with Chris Haft, which I loved. Uh, are, are we going to see some documentation of uh, some great storytelling and book form, Steve?
1: I don't know about book form. I'm kind I'm kind of remembering and, and speaking in the recorder, uh mm. about stories that shouldn't be forgotten and the mm. different ways the ball club the ball club and baseball's evolved and and so you know, I want those to be documented, some things that shouldn't be forgotten. I don't know about book form, but at least I'll i into the recorder and eventually put it on paper.
0: In oral history. I I'd love that. Um you really are N.A.'s or the A.'s historian because, uh, you know, nobody has been there front and center like you have. So it's not like you just read about it. You've lived it. You were there. And, you know, Steve, baseball is such an evolving game. It, It evolves year to year, changes week to week, day to day, especially in recent time with all the changes across the board and you know, people either change or don't stay in it. And, and so uh, how have you evolved as a person and in your role? Because equipment changes, but, you know, bats and gloves, of course, but also mindsets and strategies and philosophies and game plans.
1: And and, and nowadays you have players that have done nothing but play baseball. They've come up through the, the travel squads, and so they're more – uh, fundamental about the game and, and they understand it. And um, in a position like me, we have to be able to adapt to, hey, these guys maybe are my once mindset as far as baseball. They're not open to other things. Uh, you have to read everybody different. There were guys like uh, Milton Bradley, who was a wonderful individual. I really liked the guy. But there were days you knew to stay away from him, and, and you didn't talk to him. And the same thing with Reggie Jackson. And that's not a knock on them. It's just moods, and, and not saying you're moody, but mood swings. And and you have to adapt. You have to read into people like that. And I think that's in all walks of life. Um, I've just been fortunate to be around uh, headline-type guys and uh, can read between the lines. So I, I'm fortunate that way I was smart enough to realize that from the very beginning
0: yeah you know headline type guys oh my gosh i mean this a's run of yours i i kind of you know just off the top of my head break it down into five eras i mean the the 70s with the swinging a's and those three championships and then billy ball with ricky henderson running all the time and billy martin making it happen and the sudden success after some down years and then you evolved to La Russa and the Bash Brothers and those three World Series. And then, you know, years went by. And then Giambi showed up and that fun, loose, wild clubhouse of the early 2000s and the success they had. And then now under Bob Melvin, which um, is, is another success story. I mean, is that fair to break them down? And how would you compare, you know, era to era? And was did you have a favorite? Uh, group among those.
1: Well, um, those apples and oranges, yeah. really uh, no disrespect to what you said, but, uh, there are different things that went into each situation. Um, Tony La Russa came on just as the Steinbecks, McGuire's consecos were coming in their own, just as Dick Williams came in, uh, and really taught the guys how to play with fundamentals and things. And that was the, um, the, uh, Reggie Jackson and Sal Bandel era, the club had moved from Kansas City in 68. And in 1968, if they'd had the divisional format, we were to finish first. So we're expected to compete in 69-70 and uh, finally won a division in 71 mm-hmm. and won five straight divisions in three World Series. So you got that era, and then you've got some lean years in between. And we almost moved to to Denver once, and New Orleans was rumored and other places were rumored. Um, so you're right. There are different errors. I used to just, uh, classify the early years, the competitive years, the championship years, the dead years. And then I stopped in 1981 with the Haas family, hmm. knowing the assurances of the club staying in Oakland and, and always being competitive. So the errors have been different. Uh, the personalities have been different. Uh, Baseball still the game. We've added a designated hitter. And now, with what's going on because of COVID, is seven inning double headers and, and run the extra inning rules, um, things change. The NFL's changed more than anybody. NBA's changed a lot. Baseball hadn't changed that much. So maybe it was time for all this to happen. And you look back different eras, and nobody knew how to handle the DH. The DH is almost at the beginning were batting ninths because they didn't know where to put them. Our first DH, I think, was. Billy North, and we thought of him as the second leadoff guy. Mm -hmm. So uh, times have changed. Errors have changed. uh, But it's still the same game on the field, really.
0: Yeah, nobody knew how to handle the DH. Just like when the NBA brought in the three-point line, nobody knew how, you know, should we shoot a lot? Should we shoot a little? When do you make that attempt? And now, you know, that's all they do. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, so – you know, you you've spoken about how Catfish Hunter is your all time player. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, if so, why? Um, you know, we I mean, he was he was a true gentleman, right? He he played for the A's, played for the Yankees, won World Series titles on both coasts, but uh, Hall of Fame pitcher um, through you know just the first superstar pitcher. Uh, Really, uh, on the A's, on the Oakland A's. Uh, maybe maybe explain your, your fondness for Catfish.
1: Well, it was one of my first days on the job, and I'm a ball boy down the left field line. And Catfish pitches a perfect game. The only perfect game I'd ever heard about before yeah. was Jim Bunnings, Jim Bunnings and Sandy Koufax. And that's from afar, just really reading in the paper. You didn't have baseball highlights daily. So Catfish pitches this game. And then after the game, we find out it's the first one in 46 years. And you have to think about that. Forty-six years—it's um, almost fifty years. It's almost five decades, or into the fifth decade. So the the uh, enormity of that uh, game just stuck in my head. And then watch him handle himself. We didn't have throws of media. You didn't have electronic media around. <laughs> How he handled himself. Uh, talked to everybody. And it's right then that I could see that he was kind of leader of the pitching staff. Uh, Sal was emergency emerging as a team leader, but Catfish was kind of leader of the pitching staff. And then when it was all said and done, most people were gone. He just sat there and talked to us bat boys for 10, 15 minutes. And uh, you know, it, it was just such an impression. And then following his career the rest of the way, knowing him personally, and I've been to his farm a couple times, uh, he's just a down-home country boy. They don't call him Catfish back in Hertford. They just called him Jimmy. And uh, Catfish was a Charlie Finley baseball name. So um, uh, he, just such an impression. And uh, a, a hard worker, Hard working then didn't include the weight room, didn't include running that much, but uh, he went about his business. Uh, he didn't have to study film and stuff back then because it wasn't available, but he knew how to pitch. We will
0: be back with more of Steve Vucinich right after this quick break. You know, when the team was in Boston recently, there were two amazing stories in the first two games, Chris Bassett, who's been around quite a while, but surprisingly had never pitched at Fenway. and now he's making his first start. and uh, you know he he won the game in dominating fashion, uh, and he talked about Fenway nerves in that first inning and overcoming them. And then the next day, uh, James Caprilian, making his first big league start ever, uh, anywhere. And it just so happened to be at Fenway with, with his animated father in the crowd and the memory of his mother, front and center, Barbara Kaprelian, who died in 2014, a year before the Yankees drafted the kid in the first round. But how I mean, it's, it's just so um, heartwarming, some of these stories that play out in front of us every day. How close do you monitor these stories these are your guys I mean putting they're putting it all on the field and walking away with wonderful memories and stories to share and you're you're witnessing this stuff
1: you know it's an honor to do that and those stories play out every day in the big leagues and not just the first two days in Fenway but you know you are aware of it Uh, I've been a big Bassett fan since we acquired him from the White Sox and then he went down with the injury, and I saw how hard he worked to come back. And I, I thought he'd have some success. He, it's funny, one of the nicknames that people had for him over the years is Marmaduke, because his body just flails all over like <laughs> yeah. a cartoon character. So <laughs> to see good. him achieve that success, you know, and, and kind of surprised you, that was his first game at Fenway. Well, we didn't come here last year. The year before, he might not have been in a rotation when we came here or we just missed him on, on those starting dates. Yeah. So it's kind of a freak thing that, that he didn't pitch her. But, you know, then again, we only make one trip to the East Coast anymore, to each city with the uh, unbalanced schedule. So, and in Caprillion, I mean, I knew about him. I was told when we made the trade by the Yankee personnel that he was going to be in the starting rotation mm-hmm. that year until he blew out the last week of spring training. So, uh, you know, we had to grin and Barrett go through his rehab and surgery and uh, watch him come back. And I always thought he had a big league head. Uh, he understood pitching, um, came from a good program at UCLA. Uh, so, I, you know, I rooted for both those guys so much, a lot, a lot with Frankie Montez and some of the setbacks he's had. Um, so, you know, you like to, I won't say pick on somebody, but kind of follow their career um, pay a little bit more attention to him than you would some of the other guys for no reason other than you rooted for a guy like that. Yeah. I, was, I, I almost had tears in my eyes on Caprillion when I gave him. I got a dozen uh, authenticated baseballs for him to give away to maybe family members, former coaches, things like that from his first big league win. Wow. And I almost came to tears giving him to him because I was so happy for him. I really was.
0: That's That is awesome. That's a behind-the-scenes story that we don't always hear about. But what was his reaction when you gave it to him—the box? He just had—he
1: just had no idea. He knew he'd probably get the lineup card, which mm-hmm. we will we will frame that along with the game ball. But uh, um, uh, he had no idea that we could do something like that. So that made it really special.
0: That's really cool. Well, well, Steve, it's it's out there—the news that Major League Baseball has given the A's okay to explore other markets and. You know, you've you know, seen this, you've, you've lived it. I mean, Oakland is all you've known. The Coliseum is all you've known. Just curious on um, your take and, and you know, the, the hope that the A's stay in Oakland and whether it's at the site they're looking at, whether it's somewhere else. But, um, you know, we've gone down this road before because Charlie Finley, uh, you know, was was about to sell the team to some Denver interests, and the Haas family moved in. But anyway, what, what what's your take on the stadium issue?
1: Well, I'm hoping they can get it done. I mean, it looks like a beautiful venue and and uh, a great spot location. Um, I've seen other cities build ballparks downtown, like the Giants have. Uh, Pittsburgh has, you know, a bunch of them have it. And re-vi- I won't say revitalizes downtown, but it but it does complement it and uh, help the revitalization, and that would happen at the Waterfront Ballpark. And if that can't fly, they've got to find another way to keep it in Oakland where it's there. Maybe at the Coliseum side, or though, I'm hearing that's not a possibility. But if you like it to stay in Oakland, we came so close to moving to Denver uh, twice in the late 70s. Uh, in fact, in 1978, uh, we took our equipment truck and it went from Mesa and we told them to drive to Las Vegas. And then I'd tell them Then they would call us and I had to make sure that I was around to answer the call. It's not like cell phones and we weren't, you didn't have switchboards at the minor, at the, uh, at the uh, ballparks at the time in spring training. So I had to make sure I had the right time to call and give him directions whether he goes northeast or northwest with a truck to Denver or to Oakland and in that year um, Charlie Finley was so sure that he sold the club to Marvin Davis, the billionaire uh, oil man from Denver mm-hmm. that we opened a season in Anaheim and Charlie was there and said, told everybody don't rent a place in Oakland because the second homestand will probably be playing in Denver never been an unprecedented move in the middle of the season but uh uh, we've come that close before to losing the club uh, for various reasons. We, they stayed in Oakland, and actually the Raiders' situation in the early 80s helped us stay in Oakland because we had an ironclad lease that couldn't be broken at the time, and it, and the Raiders' lease was expiring. So we've come close before, really hoping. I mean, uh, I, <laughs> I tell people I bleed green like Thomas sort of bleeds blue. <laughs> uh, I hate to see it. Hate to see this club go anywhere, but open, So um, I'm rooting for them to do it any way they can.
0: Well, speaking of bleeding green, you you've always had the most unique color combinations in baseball green and gold with the white spikes. And what what are your thoughts on that combination? And has there ever been a movement to change those colors?
1: Um, we've tweaked it. You know, we went dark green in the eighties and now we're coming back with some more Kelly green combinations. Uh, yeah. and getting away from the green and gold. No, uh, the white shoes. Look how many guys in baseball are wearing white shoes now. I, you know, a few years ago when they loosened the restrictions on colors of shoes, I'd see, uh, somebody wearing, I saw Gio Gonzalez wearing white shoes. It was pitching for Washington. I said, Gio, you want to wear white? Come back to Oakland. But, uh, but uh, the different color combinations for shoes, uh, we're not the only ones wearing whites now. All kinds of clubs are, but not as a mandate. And, you know, people don't realize we weren't the only club to wear whites way back in the 60s and 70s. The Senators did in D.C. Uh, mm-hmm. The Angels did for a few years. Uh, but then they got back to the traditional colors. And now you can pretty much wear any color. But the green and gold, only uh, other clubs have... have uh, experimented with some green. Milwaukee did one year. So did Tampa, uh, but not full-fledged uh, color combination of green and gold that we have today or in the past. And we can thank Charlie Finley for that. He wanted to bring some color into the game, hmm. and kudos to him for that.
0: A man before his time on many fronts. You were speaking about the DH earlier, and that was his introduction uh, and his idea in a lot of ways. Hey, uh, what, what what's the clubhouse like with no beat writers? I mean, not since the end of 19, were the media allowed in the room. What's the vibe, pregame, postgame, when when oftentimes the scribes are interviewing guys or, or waiting to do so, but for now, none of that.
1: Well, um, well it's less crowded, and in that respect, I go back to the old clubhouse in Oakland, which is now our new weight room. We took the lockers out, and we're up in a Raider locker room. So with the small locker room that we had before, and the riders would kind of congregate. There's no place to really sit on the side, so they'd congregate in the corner Mm -hmm. by the door that goes down to the field. And it kind of made it kind of crowded, and some of the players kind of felt like, hey, where are you going to turn your heads? You're just staring at us. If you were in the clubhouse now in Oakland, we wouldn't even feel that. We've gone from the smallest home clubhouse in baseball to probably the largest, taking over the Raider Raider facility upstairs. (laughs) So it is kind of weird because I miss seeing you guys on a daily basis. Uh, I'd always have some banter for Susan if she wrote something wrong or covered something wrong or somebody else did just to tweak her a little bit. Uh, But seeing, uh, I love seeing Vernon Glenn come in with his little stool so he can stand (laughs) as tall as everybody else. So it is different. Uh, We don't see the coverage that uh, we got before, but uh, hopefully that will return someday.
0: Yeah, that's what we on our front are sort of missing, the intimacy and the ability to speak with with folks and, you know, collect the scene and and describe the scene and and that's kind of what baseball it, it's set apart from other sports it was always the the access and the intimacy and the ability to storytell that readers and fans uh would always you know, appreciate and, you know, trying to do our best over Zoom and you know, phone calls or, or whatever, but uh, including this one. But uh, uh, yes. hey, um, winding down here, I'm just curious if there's uh, – is there been one, like the most usual request from a player, I mean G-rated here, uh, that, that you could recall uh, because they ask – a lot of things of you and you always come through and some of them might not
1: be so standard. Um, you know, over the years in a visiting clubhouse, I had Roger Clemens asked me about six o'clock at night if I could get a birthday cake for his wife hmm. and he could bring it back to the hotel. <laughs> um, I had one that I turned down and we were leaving Anaheim a few years ago and one player came to me and he says, hey, can you send one of your guys over to San Francisco to this real special restaurant and up my meal and have it delivered to me when I get off the plane in Oakland. And to that, I said, I said no. <laughs> the only time you said no ever. <laughs> uh, maybe, well, there's probably a few yeah. more, but I, I was adamant about that because yeah. I said we're not just going to be food runners. I mean, when a player comes in and needs a prescription filled and, mm. and or he needs an errand run, it's still probably going can send somebody out. But mm-hmm. that was way, way over the board.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Well, this is—it's uh, pretty cool, Steve. I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's one market, and, and you and Mike Murphy, who's still with the Giants, and um, you know he started in '58, ten years before the A's came along uh, at Seal Stadium as a bat boy, then worked himself up into the different clubhouse roles. And have you ever shared trade secrets over the years with Burf?
1: With Murph and, and other people because that just kind of keeps you on top. You find some club is doing certain things in a different way, and you want to learn from that, experience that, keep up with them. And I've had guys come to come to me and ask me questions. So Murph and I, I told Murph five years ago, I said Murph, you can retire tomorrow, and I'm not catching you.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> he's, he's got he's got ten years on me. So what's that? 118 right there. I don't know if you I don't know if you saw it. I tweeted out a picture from Baltimore on the last road trip with the two clubhouse guys. In uh, Baltimore, Jimmy and Freddie Tyler and Mickey, and the four of us, we have yes. 213 years between us.
0: That was awesome.
1: So, so these are jobs that you keep because you love them, you have fun, you love the game, um, and you do a good job if you're staying that long. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: So maybe the last thing: what, what what do you think you'll miss, and 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 what what uh, what, what are your plans for 2022? in retirement if i'm not mistaken you're actually going to work through spring training right next year
1: i am it makes sense i I love the winter stuff i love uh spring training and i live down there makes it easy um what i'm going to do is uh, i've already got a cruise to alaska with a train trip up to denali planned for july of 2022 but what i'm going to miss the most are the relationships i have with players former players coaches uh, other front office executives throughout baseball that I've seen come through there. Uh, that's what you miss the most. I mean, we have fun on the job. I tell my guys, I said, if you're not having fun on this job, then you shouldn't be here because we can tease each other, uh, within, uh, uh, the proper guidelines nowadays. But, uh, um, the relationships is what I'm going to miss the most. I mean, even with the media, I mean, I was good friends with, I still am, with Tracy Ringlesby and Peter Gammon, so I didn't, for the first time ever, didn't get to see him uh, this trip into Boston. Guys, National guys like Nick Cafardo and Bill Madden and then TV people like Maddie Beskirshin, who grew up in Orinda and a big Ace fan, and we banner back and forth all the time. And, uh, that's what I'm going to miss the most, there's no doubt.
0: And it all started back in the day with Ron Bergman. Uh, You're right. And
1: Bergie and I were great friends. hmm. Um, Yeah, we'd go to the Cal football games together.
0: You know, I lied. There is one more question. Everyone has a great uh, Charlie O story. Uh, Everyone, at least, who's been associated with the team going back to those years. What is yours?
1: Well, I, I think it's more of a how was Charlie? How did he handle things? He would... You know, I wasn't at top of the lines at the time Charlie owned the team too much, but uh, he would still call me from time to time. And back in the day, before long distance calls were so cheap as they are now, he would spend maybe seven dollars on a on a phone call to you to bitch about a five dollar laundry bill. But Charlie always treated me fine. Uh, I have no qualms. I'm still friends with Paul Finley. His son is about my age. Uh, but uh, some of the stories about Charlie. Uh, Wanting to make out the lineup, I don't think that's as true as they were made out to be. Uh, the hiring of different managers, we went one, one, one. I mean, from Jack McKee to Bobby Winkles to Jim Marshall to Billy Martin. Nobody thought the Charlie Finley and Billy Martin relationship would last. Well, Charlie was smart enough to hire Billy because that created interest, and that's where the Haas family stepped in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so as far as Charlie, Charlie had a big ego. He, uh, he wanted to be front and center. He would only come into town in the heydays maybe five, six times a year uh, because he'd see the teams on the East Coast and when it came to the Chicago and the Midwest. But everybody knew when Charlie was coming. They tried to keep it a secret in the office, but we all knew because all of a sudden the few people we did have in the front office would all of a sudden be wearing ties. And <laughs> But uh, Charlie, uh, Charlie was a baseball man at heart, and he loved the game too.
0: Well, this is fabulous. Thank you so much, Steve, and uh, congrats again, and good luck moving forward.
1: All right, John. Thanks for the call, and uh, miss not seeing you around.
0: Thanks for joining us on the A's Plus podcast, and stay tuned for more podcasts through the summer and beyond.